Let me begin then. We'll pray. I'm going to read from this book, Fount of Heaven, again. And this prayer is, um, was written by a man named John Chrysostom, who lived uh, around about the 4th century and um, preached, I believe, in Constantinople, was ultimately uh, martyred for his faith. This is called, Give Us Patience in the Harvest. Lord, help us to imitate you and never give up on anyone. For those who fish, they may have cast many times without success, but when they cast one more time, they gain all. So we also expect that you will at once show, us, show to us ripe fruit in the lives of others. The farmer, too, after sowing, waits one or two days and anticipates a long while. But all at once, the crop springs up on every side. This we expect will take place also by the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and also to the Holy Spirit be glory, might, and honor now and forever, and world without end. Amen. Father in heaven, we do pray this morning that you would give us patience in this harvest. We pray that you would also make us faithful as we go out into the harvest. Father, we thank you for the privilege that you've given us not only to participate in this great work that you are doing in this world, but also to bear witness to what you are doing in the lives of others and to rejoice that you indeed are working and that it is our privilege, uh, our blessed privilege to see what you do in this world for your glory and for our good. Father, may we not take it for granted, but may we rejoice in, the, uh, in this grace that you've given us. Father, we pray for Sophia. We pray for these boys and girls who are joining in, this, in these Bible classes on Saturdays and Sundays. Father, we pray that you would work in their young hearts. Give them new hearts, Lord, so that they might receive your word with faith and with trust and with hope and with joy. Lord, we pray that you would give Sophia wisdom that she might teach them well. And for those others who are partnering in this work, we pray likewise for them. Father, we pray for the uh, parents, and as, they, as the fall festival approaches, as they work in this uh, particular harvest, uh, picking fruit, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in their midst, that they also might be harvest and become harvesters who go out into the world to bear witness to the goodness of Jesus Christ to your goodness is the one who sent him. Father, we pray that you would cause many to believe uh, through, uh, through the work of those who labor among them. Father, we um, also praise you for your provision. We thank you for the ways in which you've demonstrated that you are in control of all things and that you are gracious and that you are good to provide for all of our needs. We think of people we've prayed for recently and we pray again for Jack, for Larry, for Mike and for Bella. We pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts to produce faith, to cause them to repent and to believe the gospel. Father, there are many on our hearts and on our minds whose, uh, whose names have not yet been spoken or whose names um, do not yet come to mind. Think of Brian and Michelle and their friends. And we pray, Lord, for those many others that you would do a mighty work in their hearts cause the gospel to take root, cause them to believe and to trust you forevermore. 
Father, we pray that you would uh, be pleased to use us uh, in this work and this harvest, that you would give us the wisdom and the courage and the faith to go out into the world as people who hold forth the gospel and who share it boldly and courageously and, uh, and clearly and confidently, not with confidence that's rooted in our own strength and our own ability, but confident that confidence that is rooted in you and the certainty of your kingdom. Father, we pray for those who are ill or those who have various ailments. We think of Mike, our brother, and we thank you, Lord, for the good reports that he's received this week, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in his body to heal him and to continue to work in the doctors to give them wisdom. We pray for... Um, those who are unable to be with us this morning because of various ailments, we pray that you would give them strength and healing. For those who are suffering among us, we pray likewise, Lord, that you would strengthen their body and also that you would give them, um, uh, help them to endure faithfully in, this, uh, in the difficulties of this life. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And uh, the subject that I want to take up concerns uh, the relationship between the law and the gospel and the kingdom of God. I think what we'll find in this text is that this is a unifying theme um, in, in this particular portion of Jesus' ministry. Um, how people understand the law, how they apply it to their lives. And it's also, uh, hopefully, will encourage us as we think upon um, our relationship to the law of God and to the gospel, how the gospel um, uh, changes that relationship and um, the coming of the kingdom likewise. So let me read verses 1 through... Um, I'll read down to 31. We'll see what we can cover this morning, but let me read verses 1 through 31 of Mark chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So as we think about this text before us, uh, and you'll see this is a theme this morning in the sermon and, and, and uh, even flowing into our uh, time this evening, is um, as we approach this text or any text, I think it's important that we learn to see, uh, the, uh, learn not to miss the forest through the trees. You know what I mean there, that we see the big picture even as we look at uh, smaller portions of Scripture. It's important to see within, when we're looking at a gospel how uh, the narrative unfolds. And one of the ways, just one that we'll focus on this morning, one of the ways in which we can see connection between various narratives in Scripture is by observing thematic uh, relationships, observing common themes that are held throughout so that each text before us helps to mutually interpret the other. The common theme that, uh, that we see, at least one of the common themes that we see running through all of this, uh, this portion, these 31 verses, concerns the law. As people come to Jesus, they, uh, they, they repeatedly come speaking about or having discussions about or asking questions about what is required of them with respect to the law in order to gain entrance to the kingdom of God. On the other hand, we see a theme of, of that idea of entering the kingdom of God where Jesus lays out other uh, entry requirements, other entrance requirements that really are independent of the law in our lives. And I think that's important to see because if we narrow our focus, and that's important too, but if we narrow our focus only and say take um, verses 1 through 10, for instance, 1 through 11, Jesus' discussion of uh, divorce and remarriage, and we separate that from the whole, then uh, one of the challenges that, uh, one of the problems is that it, it lands really heavy on us 
in a way that maybe Mark did not intend it to. It, it lands very heavy on us as if, um, you know, uh, uh, we, we look at all, all of our lives and, and, and we look at how we've failed. Uh, even if we've not been divorced, we're confronted with the fact that, well, there are many other ways in which one can be judged guilty of adultery just by having wicked thoughts in his mind. That person is, uh, is counted guilty of, of this sin. And then it lands very heavy and we go away uh, full of sorrow like the rich young man, feeling condemned, feeling like, well, we, we have not measured up, we will never measure up, and therefore we, you know, we've lost all hope. But when we see the broader picture, we begin to see that this passage serves a broader purpose of pointing people away from the law, not because the law itself is bad, but pointing them away from the law because the law will not be the means by which anyone gains entrance into the kingdom of God. I think that's the general idea of what Jesus is presenting, uh, what Mark is presenting to us from the ministry of Jesus. Now, of course, we can look, as I've said, we can look more narrowly, more closely at these verses in chapter 10 at the very beginning and think about how do we as Christians approach the subject of divorce and remarriage in our own lives, the subject of marriage more generally, and learn from it uh, as well. And, and we, ought, we ought to do that. If you remember, any of you who were here two Sunday nights ago, when I went through ways in which we reason as Christians about ethical principles, about moral challenges, we're going to see many of those ideas here. Many of the ideas that I presented in that sermon came from uh, long, lengthy reflection on passages like this very passage. We're going to see that Jesus uses some of those principles to instruct us how we ought to reason through the challenges we face in life. But we ought not to think that, the, 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 that this is only there for um, you know, uh, making good legalistic Pharisees out of us. You see, that would be the wrong way to take this. So in any case, let me turn this over to you and ask you, let's just start look, by looking at verses 1 through 11, or 1 through 12, I'm sorry. And let me ask for your observations from the text. Things a lot that we've done before, like uh, who is in this text, who do we have identified, um, uh, just those who, what, where, when, why questions, uh, what happens, and so on and so forth. So, what do you see in the text? Karen? That's right. Jesus is teaching the crowds. So there's our, we, we establish that setting there as Jesus teaches the crowds. Who comes to him? Ch uh, children that do come to him. As we look down into verse 13, before the children come to him, who comes to him? Pharisees. That's right. And what is in the heart of the, what's motivating the Pharisees in their, uh, in their coming to Jesus? In order to test him, I heard, I heard someone say that in a whisper. That's right. So we're already clued in by Mark that their intentions are not, um, they're, they're not good intentions. They're not coming because they want to learn from him. They're not coming because they recognize him for who he is. They're coming because they want to test him. And the, the question that they've, they've come up with is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if we think about the situation, Jesus is, is the, the, his ministry is mature, right? He's been uh, speaking and teaching a lot for a long time. So surely these Pharisees already know some of the things that Jesus has taught concerning divorce. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, for instance, and what he says there in the Sermon on the Mount, that 
is past, uh, th that's a past event. That teaching is a past event um, relative to where we are situated in Mark's gospel. And so surely they already know what Jesus has taught concerning divorce, concerning uh, marital faithfulness, concerning the nature of adultery, and so on and so forth. And that suggests they don't really agree. They think that his, his interpretation of the law uh, is, is wanting. And so Jesus puts a question back to them, as he often does. What does he ask them? Yeah, what does Moses say? What did Moses command you? Now, there's a, there's a little irony here, right? Because what did, what did Moses write in our Bibles? It's a nice little trivia question. What, what part, portions of our Bibles was Moses the human author of? Yeah, li, li, list the books, Stephen. Numbers and Deuteronomy. Yeah, so the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. When we say Moses, we can, we, can re, you, we can refer to those books as Moses. What did Moses say? Moses said Genesis through Deuteronomy. We could also actually include Psalm 90. Uh, Psalm 90 was also written by Moses. Beautiful psalm there at the, the head of the fourth book of the Psalms. But here the focus is on Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, but in their minds, they're thinking primarily to those legal portions. They, you're going to see that they've really, they've really emphasized the, the legal portions of these texts over against the narrative portions of these texts. And Jesus is going to show them they've kind of got it backwards. So he says, what did Moses command you? And they answer, um, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Here is where they're coming from. It's in Deuteronomy 24. Let me read that text for you. Deuteronomy 24, in verse 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I think that's a really fascinating text when you look more closely at it. It, it, seem, it. It's clear that Jesus has read this more closely than the Pharisees. They've read it and they say, oh, see, we're allowed to do this. We're, we're free to permit, we're permitted to do divorce, to, to divorce our wives. And they would have practiced this quite regularly. Um, many in Israel uh, throughout, you know, they, 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 for what it, it doesn't say what causes that person, what causes that man to decide he no longer wishes to be married. He, in, in that time, in that ancient, in that society, he kind of had all the control, and he just had to, he wrote a certificate, he divorced her, he sent her on her way, and uh, that was it. Um, but when you look at it, Moses never actually commends divorce as a practice in Deuteronomy 24. There's all these conditional statements, if this, if, 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 you know, and he does this, and he does this, and he does this, the, the command is he's not allowed to take back the wife he divorced after she's free, to, uh, free, free from the, the second husband. And notice what he says in that. He, you know, uh, after, he doesn't say, 
you know, for some arbitrary reason, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. The idea is that um, this, you know, Moses recognizes that what has happened, what has been done, is not a good and right and ideal situation. But he also recognizes it's go- they're going to do it. And why does Jesus say that they're going to do it? Why does Jesus say that Moses gave them this commandment? Hardness of heart. This is really key, I think, when we think about the law. It, throughout Deuteronomy, not just in this, so there's this text, but throughout Deuteronomy, we see that there's this tension where God tells the people of Israel what they need. They need new hearts. And he uses language like they need their hearts to be circumcised. Um, and in, so for example, Deuteronomy 5.29, Moses is talking about the way the people of Israel responded when they saw God, uh, God's power as he, he demonstrated it through the fire and the lightning on Mount Sinai. And God says, oh, that they had such a heart always as a kind of recognition they're not, that this heart's not going to last. They're not going to respond this way all the time. They don't have this heart that endures. And in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses tells the people of Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. But ultimately, we're going to see in Deuteronomy that that's not something they can do on their own. They need God to do this work in them. And so in Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses would say, To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he looks forward to a day when God will do that work of circumcising their hearts. The later prophets, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, they both spoke of this this day, this event, when God would visit his people and give them new hearts. And they used that same language when God would come and circumcise the hearts of his people, when God would come and write his law on their hearts, when he would put the fear of the Lord in their hearts, the day when he would give them one heart, as Ezekiel says, and remove their heart of stone. Ezekiel 36, then verse 26 also, there God promises a new heart for his people in the new covenant that he will make in in the latter days. So you see that what Jesus seems to be doing is he's reflecting on the whole of the law, and he's recognizing that even built into that commandment in Deuteronomy 24 is an acknowledgement that the the initial divorce should never have happened in the first place, but it's going to happen. And why is it going to happen? A broader understanding of Deuteronomy, what it teaches, it's going to happen because of hard hearts. It's going to happen because of stony hearts. Because the people will not be able to fully put into place the ethical requirements that God really requires because they need a new heart for that. The law is powerless. Uh, This is an important idea. We'll find it in Paul, for instance, in Romans 7. The law is good. It's righteous. it's, It's spiritual. It tells us truly what God requires of man. But what it lacks is power. It doesn't have the ability to actually change us and to empower us to do what we need to, be, need to do in order to honor the Lord. And that, Paul then in Romans 7 and 8, puts that in contrast with life in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who has the power to constrain us, to empower us, to give us the new heart we need, and to... to, to uh, inscribe God's law upon our hearts and to work in us so that we are able to honor God with our lives. Jesus is working from this framework of understanding. Now, let's 
think about how he would answer his own question. He, he recognizes that that commandment in Deuteronomy 24 is not just this blanket uh, allowance that, that, that says divorce is, is not a problem, but it's a concession. But looking uh, at, the, at Moses himself, where does he go? But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus has done is he's applied uh, what I referred to two weeks ago on Sunday evening as a uh, creation principle. He recognizes that there is a priority in the principle established at creation that demonstrates that the, 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 the universality of that requirement, that it's universal for all people everywhere, that it's, uh, it, it takes priority over things that come later, that it is characteristic of an unfallen good world. We're talking about Genesis 2.24 prior to Genesis 3 in the fall. This, this, idea, this way of reasoning ethically recognizes that when we see something in Genesis 1 and 2, when we see a description of the world in which God made it good, we see his intention, his perfect intention for this world. And we're to reason on that basis that this is, uh, uh, this is what God would have us, the way God would have us live. It, it, you know, to recognize that it has that universal import, all people everywhere, for all time as long as this created order exists. So marriage, for instance, is founded as a creation principle, but we won't see marriage and giving in marriage in, in, in uh, the new creation. Jesus says that elsewhere, that in the resurrection they're not given in marriage. You see, that, that principle endures as long as this created world endures. When this one passes away and is replaced with the new creation, then we no longer have those creation uh, principles in quite that way. But for as, you know, So that's the idea of, of reasoning on the basis of a creation principle. And Jesus does that. He goes back to Genesis 2.24. He recognizes that God has joined together uh, uh, a husband and wife, and that no man should separate them. This also can be seen in Malachi. Um, in Malachi chapter 2, in verse th to give you some context in these four chapters of Malachi, you can imagine it like a, um, a courtroom scene where the prophet is representing God. Malachi represents God. And he's bringing charges against Israel, particularly focused on the priests of Israel. And then God is saying, here's your defense. And then, you know, so he's already, he already knows how they would defend themselves. And then he responds to their defense. And so here is one of the charges in Malachi 2.13 that, that um, the prophet brings for God against the priests at this late stage in Israel's history. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Here's the reason why, why God does not accept the offering from the hand of the priests. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless, faithless to the wife of your youth. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is a charge to the priests, and it's striking that Malachi doesn't just use the language of um, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but here he uses the, the language of violence, that you, you, know, you shall not commit murder, that this person becomes, uh, this priest, these priests who he's charging become a very, uh, very guilty before the Lord for this act. Now, let me contrast this with a picture that you, you're all familiar with by this point. The opening of the Gospel of Luke. Zechariah and Elizabeth. If Zechariah were acting like the priests in Malachi's day, he would dismiss his barren wife and find another. You see why Zechariah is presented to us and Elizabeth is presented to us as people who are righteous before the Lord. This is just one of the reasons. Here's a man whose wife was barren till his old age, and yet he remained faithful to her. It's a picture of godliness. It's a good picture. The people of Zechariah's day would have looked at that and said, uh, the Lord must be judging him for something. But we know from Luke that the Lord regarded his actions as, one, as, as actions that were commendable, uh, praiseworthy, that were righteous in keeping with the law. He had internalized the message of Genesis, the message of uh, Deuteronomy, the message of Malachi, and uh, all of what God had written. And he demonstrated that in his marriage. So, Jesus reasons as to what is true, what is right, and what is wrong, and how does one come afoul of the law of God. And uh, whereas the Pharisees are looking for all their loopholes and all their exceptions and ways out and ways that they can escape from the commandments of God. The disciples, too, are struck by this. And you see that there in verse 10. They, they, they can't believe that this is so. Their frame of, of thinking is quite different as well. They asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. So he really puts the onus on the, on the, the man here, whereas prior we've seen that it's um, the man causing the woman um, to, to come afoul of the, of, the, of the law of God. But here it's the man himself who is now guilty as well. Uh, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I said earlier that this, this can hit us like a, a two-ton anvil. We all can look back in our lives and find ways in which, even if uh, you know, we've never been divorced and remarried, we've run afoul of God's law. Uh, and um, sorry about that. The speaker shouldn't have his phone on. But um, the, 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 Jesus' overall point is not so that we might... Um, you know, might uh, reconstruct a New Testament version of the Ten Commandments, right? I, I don't think that's the point of his teaching. Uh, sometimes we do that when we go around the New Testament and we hunt for the exception clauses where we can say, well, uh, the only reason why a divorce might be permitted under any circumstances, those exception clauses that I find in texts like Mark chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians 7, and if it doesn't meet those criteria, then it's not going to be permitted. Um, I don't think that's the, that's the idea that he's giving us. Uh, now, at the same time, we are people who don't have hard hearts if we are in Christ. And so we should be able to expect that Christians, that believers are able to live faithfully together Married believers are able to live faithfully together 
and to resolve their differences for, till death do them part, really till death do them part. And so it is not, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not trying to introduce all kinds of exceptions. That, that is the standard that Christ sets before us as Christians. The way in which we can live up to that standard is by the Spirit of God working in us to enable us to do what pleases God. But when we think about our past failures to live up to the standard, when we reflect upon those realities in our lives, Jesus is not saying, I'm just trying to keep condemnation on you. He is confronting the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But rather, he's showing us our inability to gain entrance into the kingdom through the law of God. Because we're, you know, we're all going to fail this standard, right? We're all going to fail this standard, even if we've never been divorced and remarried. That's part of the point. We're going to see that unfold in the narrative as it unfolds. That, that there are people who are trying to gain entrance into the kingdom in a way that can never gain them entrance into the kingdom. Let me stop and ask, are there questions on that? Or is there anything that you would like me to refine or to, to clarify? Um, okay. So the bottom line that I, I want to leave you with to summarize that the law is not going to, obedience to the law, legalistic principles, is not what's going to get us into heaven. That's demonstrated, the way he demonstrates it is by showing that everyone will fall short. Everyone does fall short. In this particular instance with the Pharisees, it's in their interpretation where they seek out loopholes in the law and fail to understand what's truly required of someone who lives faithfully before God. Now we're going to see, uh, uh, there's negative, we're going to see the positive. Who are the people that are, uh, who gain entrance into the kingdom? So who comes to Jesus at this point? Hetty said it, she said, uh, children. And it's actually people were bringing their children to him, right? So people are coming and they're bringing their kids along. And what do the disciples do? question him. Before they question him, what's the, look at the word, the specific word, rebuke. When you see that word rebuke, what else do you think of? Where do we see rebuke, the word rebuke in, uh, in the Gospels? Who? Yeah, when Jesus rebukes demons, when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, when, you know. So now think about the bigger picture, where have we been? What happened when the disciples came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, that the three with Jesus and they found the nine? What were they doing? They were failing to exercise the demon. Uh, they were failing to rebuke and cast out that demon. Jesus rebukes the demon, casts it out. And then we're going to see another word later when Jesus says, do not hinder them. If you go back to Mark chapter 9, John said to him, Mark chapter 9, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon able, soon afterward, to speak evil of me. That word, do not stop him, is the same as uh, do not hinder him. Do not hinder them. You know, you could uh, translate both the same way. So don't hinder him. Don't hinder 
the man who's casting out the demons. Don't hinder the children who are coming to me. I think it's an ironic picture, is the point. Um, you have these disciples who've demonstrated their inability to rebuke demons and to cast out demons, but they're willing to hinder the guy who's able to do it. And now they're, they're, they're playing the big man, and they're going to rebuke and hinder children. <laughs> okay, come on, guys. They're not getting it. Um, it you know, just showing their misunderstanding and their, their, their own personal failures. So how does Jesus respond? What does he teach them in that moment? Anyone? Go ahead. Just shout it out. What does Jesus teach the, the disciples um, using the object lesson of it? Summarize it in your own words. That's right. The, the, the way to get... Go ahead. Sorry. That's right. The way to gain entrance to the kingdom of God, as Aminta has said, is to become like a child. Now, what does that mean? We need to understand that when Jesus speaks about entrance into the kingdom of God in this way, there is a there is a figurative uh, language, a figurative use of language, a metaphorical approach. Just think of Nicodemus. When Jesus spoke to him about the kingdom of God, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus failed to understand because he interpreted him too literally. Can I enter my mother's womb again? That's not what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. I'm talking about being born of the spirit, right? You've got to be born again. as a becoming like a child again. There's a new birth that will make us childlike. Now, a, a, a characteristic of children is they're, they're, uh, they're going to believe their parents. They're going to trust their parents. Um, even my kids, when, I'm, when I mess around with them, they have to ask me, are you joking, Dad? Uh, because uh, they, they're predisposed to trust me, even when I'm teasing them. Um, the older ones have figured it out. But uh, you see that, that there's a quality of faith in a child and that comes through a work of God, a new, the, the, that work of the Spirit. What the, um, the Pharisees lacked that, that required Moses to give them this concession in the law is uh, what we need. We need to become like children. So you see this contrast here in Mark. As, as Jesus paints the picture of what won't get you into the kingdom is your rigorous uh, keeping of the law because you're going to fail. What will get you in the kingdom is something you can't do. It's all connected. The, uh, the re resolution to the hardness of heart that's your problem, the resolution to um, uh, your lack of childlike character, which is your problem, all of that's bound up in the new birth and what the Spirit does in us. Questions or any other further observations on verse 13 through 18? Yes, Hetty. Hetty. 